Welcome to you all again in the name of our Lord Jesus. He possesses a name above every name. That name at which the day is coming when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the day is coming when Satan will bow and confess as a lost person the glory and the wonder of the one he opposes. Jesus is Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 10, <clears throat> beginning with verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Show so your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven." Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is, Lord, to come to you as the one who teaches and the one who's faithful to meet us in our need, to be led in truth. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Father. We know your word declares it is inspired by you, God-breathed. And Lord, it is profitable for us. It is a means of blessing to us spiritually. Thank you that you are, you stand behind this word in your authority. It is your word. You have given this word, Lord, to sanctify us as your people. That is the prayer of Jesus. It is the declaration that he made in that prayer. It is the desire of his heart, of your heart. It's the desire of our heart that we be a sanctified people. We want to know your word. We want to know truth. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to grope along in this world, Lord, in shadows. We don't want to be enveloped in a darkness that the world, Lord, lives in. You brought us out of all that. 
to be the people of God. And Lord, you've given us your word to be the foundation of our life and to be that power in our life that transforms us from within to the outward aspects of our being. Lord, we ask you to make us holy. Sanctify us. Every desire, every motive, every thought, every attitude of our being. Lord, our speech, the actions of our life, the choices we make, decisions, our mind, our will, our emotions. May our lives fulfill the will of God. Lord, you are the answer to all of this. You've said apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you, though, as we abide in you, as we trust in you, as we cling to you, you're faithful to meet us. You are with us. You are for us. You will never leave us or forsake us. All we need to do is turn in our heart to you, Lord, and we lay hold of you. We know your presence. We know your strength, your power. That is what you have promised to be to us. You're a shepherd, a refuge, a fortress, a strong tower. You're everything we need, Lord. Our strength, the sustainer of our life. The promises you've given us, Lord, are so abundant, so many. They speak to us of a heart of love that is committed to us. So we come to you and lift up your word to you. And Lord, we ask you to give us insight, understanding, truth, and that our lives by your spirit would be conformed, Lord, to the truth of your word. That we would indeed, as we just read, be your people, Lord, who love you, who fear you, who cling to you, who serve you, who trust you, who walk with you, who worship you, who obey you. And in the end, Lord, in all of this, that we would bring glory to your name. So we ask you to meet us in the, these desires of our heart and empower us to be the kind of men, Lord, you describe in your word. <clears throat> Thank you. You're faithful. And you are able, Lord, to meet us in our need and our weakness. So we bless you and look to you now, Lord, to teach us and ground us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to our study, the Word of God this morning, we want to come again to the Pentateuch and to the book of Deuteronomy. We've been going systematically through the first five books of the Bible in an effort to understand their importance and their relationship to the remainder of the Old Testament as well as to the New, and how it is, as, as is asserted by many biblical scholars, that these five books which comprise, as we have noted, one ultimate book written by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is in fact the foundation to the entirety of the Bible. To understand the Pentateuch is to understand God's purposes in the world and the spiritual principles that govern His kingdom and what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom and the people of God and what our calling as a people of God is. 
So in our study, we have finally made our way then now to the book of Deuteronomy. We've gone through all the other four. The final book of the Pentateuch, in some ways, also the most important of those books. As we saw last week, this book is a bit different from these four that have preceded it in that it is not primarily a book of history, a narrative. It does obviously have an historical setting. It has to do with the second generation of Israel delivered from Egypt who, as their parents have experienced for 40 years, wandered in the wilderness as a judgment of God against that first generation for their habitual unbelief and rebellion against God, and who were banished to die in the wilderness. Every single one of them from 20 years old of age and older. Every single one of them perish in the wilderness. That has occurred, and now God is starting over with their children. The second generation, and by second generation we mean the second generation that has come out of Egypt, delivered by God from Egypt. Brought out of there, now the people of God call to fulfill his purposes in and through them And he will do that by bringing them into the land of promise and fulfillment of the covenant that he made with Abraham. So Genesis to Numbers, basically, is an historical account. It's a narrative of the first generation of Israel. How God brought them into being, how he delivered them from Egypt and brought them to Sinai to enter into a covenant with them, to establish them as as the people of God, and then to bring them into the promised land in fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. And we've seen how half of the book of Exodus and all of Leviticus deals with the giving of the law of Moses to the people to govern their corporate and individual lives as a people who represent God on the earth. That is their calling by God, one of their primary callings. They are here to worship God but they are called as a nation to be a light to the nations. And this law is given by God to govern them as a people related to their personal relationship and walk with the Lord in that they have the moral aspect of the law. And then they have their worship of God, their approach to Him. That is the ceremonial aspect of the law And then their life as a national entity, as a nation, and they have civil laws that were given to them. The giving of this law is the major theme of the Pentateuch. It is the very heart of the Pentateuch. It is that which defines the people of Israel as the people of God, as a unique people on the earth, and which defines their purpose and calling as a people. The law of God is the foundation to their whole life, personally and corporately. The giving of this law by God is hugely significant for understanding the overall meaning of the Pentateuch and the rest of the Word of God. Its importance simply cannot be overstated. 
We see this reinforced then in the book of Deuteronomy. Because the overarching theme of Deuteronomy is the law of God and the reaffirming of that law, in particular the moral law aspect of it, the Ten Commandments, what we call the Decalogue, for the life of the people and the necessity for them as a people of God to be wholly committed to it. And through it, thereby to be a wholly committed, to be wholly committed to the person of God. You see, we're not just committing ourselves to laws. The law of God, if you're committed to the law of God, directs you to a person. So first and foremost, they're going to be committed to a person, the person of the living God. And out of that commitment to him, they will then be committed to his law and the specific commandments as they apply to them and how they live. So as God tells his people over and over again in Deuteronomy, this law is your calling as a people. It is to be the foundation for everything in your life. By obedience to it, you will know the blessing of God and the fulfilling of his purposes in and through your life, both personally and corporately. On the other hand, by disobedience, you will know the curse of God and the forfeiting of his blessing on on your life and your eventual removal from the land. Deuteronomy then is addressed to the second generation of Israel encamped on the plains of Moab as they are preparing to go into the promised land. They are here encamped on the very border of Canaan. And the book, as we've seen last week, as we sought to do an overview study of it, It's comprised of a series of messages or sermons, if you will, given by Moses, addressed to the nation to ground them in the essential truths spiritually they need to know and be committed to as the people of God. It is a book that is full of instruction and exhortation and warning, also encouragement, promises, but application. And really when it's all said and done, Moses has just one major theme he's reiterating and impressing on the people over and over and over again. God has called you out of all the nations of the earth to be his people. He is going to establish you as a nation in the land of promise as the seed of Abraham. And you have only one thing that you need to keep ever before you. One thing of highest importance, the one thing that matters most to God, be wholly committed to walk in obedience to his law in a relationship with him as defined by that law. The entirety of the book of Deuteronomy, practically with the exception maybe of the first three chapters, has to do with the law of God and its importance and application to the nation as a people of God. The entire book. Is about the law of God. Moses restates the giving of the law of God at Sinai in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which he says sums up the covenant of God with Israel. And then the remainder of Deuteronomy is simply a further explication and instruction and application of the Decalogue to the lives of the people. The call to commitment and obedience 
So given the fact that the law of God is the main theme of the last half of the book of Exodus and all of Leviticus and now all of Deuteronomy, we can see the enormous importance of the law that it holds in the Pentateuch and therefore for the remainder of the Old Testament. We see the teaching of the Pentateuch and in particular Deuteronomy reiterated over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. For example, the third category of the division of the Old Testament called the writings, which is those books which are distinct from the writings of the prophets. That's the second category of the Old Testament. So you've got three main categories of the Old Testament. It's divided up. The first is the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch. That's the foundation. Secondly, we have the prophets, the writings of the prophets. And then thirdly, we have a category called the writings, or as Jesus said, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms are the first book that head up that third category of the writings. It includes the wisdom literature of Israel. The first Psalm starts off that, that whole category. What is the first psalm all about? It's all about the law of God and being a man or a woman of God. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Blessing. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The blessing of Abraham is what he's talking about, the Abrahamic covenant. The blessing of the Abrahamic covenant comes to those who are godly and righteous who are conformed to the moral law of God. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. What a terrible word. Your whole life is just worthless <laughs> in God's eyes. Worthless. Chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The importance and priority of the law of God for the life of the people that not only has direct consequences for life here and now in terms of knowing or not knowing the blessing of God, but consequences for eternity. The way of the wicked will perish. Who are the wicked? Those who are not submitted to and conformed to the law of God. So this teaching on the law of God is extremely important as we see in the Old Testament, but it's also very important as an application to us in this New Testament dispensation because this teaching is foundational also to the New Testament church for the New Testament people of God. The instruction, exhortation, the warning, the encouragement, the application of Psalm 1 which is simply a reflection and reiteration of the teaching of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, applies to each one of us individually and corporately as a church. 
And therefore, given the enormous emphasis the Lord places on the law of God and its importance in the Pentateuch and throughout the rest of the Word of God, it's important that we have a clear understanding of the Ten Commandments. What is their true nature? What is their meaning? And so to that end, then, we want to take some time to focus on the commandments, the law of God. So turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, now he starts the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words of the Lord to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick gloom, with a great voice, he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. In verse 31, but as for you, Moses, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. 
So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. The law of God. God through Moses here is renewing the covenant he made with the people at Sinai in the giving of his law with this second generation. And he tells his generation that God had called their fathers and mothers into relationship with himself at Sinai as defined by his law that they might be his people. And he reaffirms his exact same calling then on this generation as he restates the Ten Commandments to them and calls them to the same commitment that he called their parents to. So look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that your son, that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <laughs> I don't know how God can make it any more clear. <laughs> It's just hammering the importance of the law and the Word of God. He's emphasizing the priority and the importance of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, which represents a covenant relationship between God and His people, and the call for its application to their heart and their lives is that which is meant to set them apart and distinguish them as a people of God from the rest of the nations of the world. Those that will surround Israel as she takes possession of the land. They are called to be light to those nations. And it is by this law and their commitment to it that God is going to manifest His glory to the nations. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it and is the Lord, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law 
which I am setting before you today. Israel then is called to maintain the contrast between themselves and the other nations through this commitment to the Lord and His law and His word. And they are warned repeatedly to beware and to repudiate the influence of the nation surrounding them, which represent the world they live in. To repudiate the way of life of that world. Israel's way of life is not to be conformed to the pattern of life of the nations surrounding them. God's whole purpose is to show the people there is a difference between your gods and your false worship and the true and the living God, your creator. My people will be a blessing to you if they simply follow me. Israel is to be different. And the Word of God here says, woe to them if they violate that distinction and corrupt their calling from God. That's a sober warning God gave to Israel in the book of Leviticus and now at the end of Deuteronomy with the threat of curses. The main theme then of Deuteronomy is the law of God, the Ten Commandments. They're rather important. So how are we to understand them? Well, before getting into the individual commands, we need to establish some general principles. The need to have it clearly established in our minds that the law of God, first of all, doesn't save you. Okay? God is not calling Israel to be saved by obedience to the law of God. That's legalism. That is utterly impossible. God is not calling for New Testament believers to be saved by obedience to the law of God. The law of God as an expression of His being and holiness demands perfect obedience. The law of God reveals our sin. It drives us to the Lord for salvation. But once we're saved, this law then becomes a rule of righteousness meant to govern our lives as a people of God empowered by His Spirit to be holy. Secondly, the law of God is divided into two main sections. The first section corresponds to the first tablet written by God that deals with the first four commandments, which have to do with our personal relationship with God. And then the second category relates to the remaining six commandments, which have to do with man's relationship with man. There, these commands come to the individual and apply then as individuals apply them to the nation. But the important point here to note is that there is a distinction and priority between the two tablets or these two categories of the law. The first four commandments are the highest priority. The last commandments flow out of these first four. The second table of the law is directly tied to the first table. But one cannot obey the second table of the law a relationship with men unless there is first of all a commitment to a right relationship with God as defined by the first table. 
And these distinctions and priority were summarized by Jesus in Matthew 22, where he describes the two tables of the law under the general category, if you remember, of love. Where love for God is the greatest of all commands, representing the first table. So in quoting Deuteronomy 6, he says, The first and the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a summation of the first table of the law. And then he says the second, the second table, the second commandment, the second greatest commandment is like unto it, which summarizes the second table, quoting Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So to love my neighbor as myself is defined by the law of God. In order to do that, I must first be in a right relationship with God as defined by the law of God, where I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. The power to apply and obey the second table of the law comes out of the application of the first table. We can only live this law if we're in the Lord. We know God. Thirdly, we need to understand the true application of the law as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, but which is very clear as well from the overall teaching of the Old Testament, which can, but which can very easily be distorted and has been throughout the ages. And that is the fact that undergirding the outward expression of the law in terms of, it, of our outward behavior, there is also a spiritual application to the heart in the inner being that directly impacts one's spirit, desires, thoughts, attitudes, motives, the inner being. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. So we can see this from Jesus' exegesis and application of the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard it said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. So he's saying, you have a false concept of the law. That's why he's saying this. You view it strictly outwardly, completely overlooking the reality of the heart. And that's the most important thing to God. Now, obviously it's a good thing not to commit adultery. <laughs> but, Jesus is saying, it goes a whole lot deeper than that. There's more to adultery in God's eyes than the physical act, and far more to the meaning of obedience to the law of God than simply refraining from the outward physical manifestation of it. We can obey it outwardly and be guilty of disobeying it inwardly in thought and desire in the heart. So the law of God is spiritual. It has to do with the entirety of our being, heart and outward behavior. And so we we see then that the law of God is an integrated whole that is what theologians call theocentric in nature. It is given by God to those he has created to help them understand 
that all of life is to be viewed from the perspective of the reality of his being and a relationship with him. As the book of Hebrews says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows our heart. He knows us through and through. And all of life is to be viewed from the perspective of our accountability to the one who created us. Well, with all of that said, let's begin to think about the individual commandments then. Beginning with the first one. Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, that's the first commandment of the Decalogue. It's a declaration to the people of Israel that it is God the Lord who has intervened in the life of Israel to bring them out of bondage in Egypt from captivity to Pharaoh. A picture of redemption for the purpose of being their God and that they should be His people. I am the Lord Yahweh. That is the name that is here. Your God. God has brought them to Sinai then to establish them in this unique spiritual relationship with Himself. So when God says, I am the Lord, He is establishing the fact in their minds that he is the true and the living God, the God of creation, Yahweh. This is a declaration then of monotheism, that he is the Lord, that as Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.39, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. And therefore he carries supreme authority as God whose law carries supreme authority as a revelation from him. But then as Yahweh the Lord, God is not only Israel's creator, he is her redeemer by virtue of his delivering them from slavery in Egypt, and therefore by right of creation and redemption, they are his people. They belong to him. And the relationship the Lord is calling them Calling them to is an exclusive one where he will be their God and they will be his people. Which means then that this is a spiritual relationship where God is God to them. He is God in a personal relationship which involves their heart. And the interesting thing is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's singular, not plural. He's speaking to individuals, every single individual. The the nation is just made up of individuals. This law is to apply to the individual believer, the individual child of Abraham. He is to be God in a personal relationship which involves your heart, for as Deuteronomy 6 proclaims, the heart of what this commandment means is summed up in that commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That requires, as the Lord says then in verse 7, that there be no other gods before me. In other words, 
no idols. This commandment is the first of the ten, as such it is the most important of the ten. It is, in fact, foundational to all the others. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. I am God. <laughs> I am the Lord, and I am your God, and you shall be free of idols. If I am to be your God, there can be no idols here. This is God's declaration not only to Israel, it is a declaration to all men on the face of the earth. It's a profound revelation to us of who we are as human beings, why we were created, and what our ultimate purpose is as human beings. Our Creator has spoken. God did not whisper this to Moses, who then spoke it to Israel. God, He said, in a mighty voice, declared this law and then put it in stone. It's a law that goes out to the ends of the earth. There's one true and living God. There is none but Him. And His name is not Allah. His name is Yahweh. The true and the living God has given us a Hebrew name for who He is. He's the one who is Lord. The true and the living God who gives a word of authority telling us that He alone is God and that we are created for a heart relationship of love for Him and with Him. A relationship of exclusive worship where He alone is God in the life. There are no idols before Him. No false gods. No false worship. Where He alone is God in the heart and life. Where there is a real relationship between God and the individual. So what the Lord is declaring to us here is that the true meaning and purpose of life is found in a true relationship with Him as God, as defined by the revelation of His law. He is God. He is our Creator. We are created beings, and therefore He is our God. And in salvation, in redemption, we are called into this unique relationship with the true and the living God to be His people and His children so that we are His by right of creation and redemption. But that relationship is defined by the law of God. And the revelation of God in His Word is the one who gives the law of who He is as the true and the living God. And so the first commandment is dealing in essence with one major truth to which all other commandments and truths are subordinate. And that is the issue of idolatry. This involves on the one hand the full embracing of the truth of who the true and the living God is so that man is rightly related to Him. And then on the other hand this involves a repudiation of idols so that God alone is God in the heart and the life who is loved and worshipped and served alone. Idolatry is to be ruthlessly repudiated and the true and the living God exclusively worshipped. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love, who love me and who keep my commandments. So this warning cry then to beware of idolatry is sounded forth repeatedly throughout Deuteronomy. The Lord warns his people that as his people and as his representatives on the earth, they must be on guard against the influence of the world around them. The nations that may draw them into idolatry because that world around them is steeped, totally steeped in idolatry. False worship, false gods. The most important commitment of their lives is to guard and maintain and not corrupt or compromise this first love relationship of exclusive worship with the Lord in their heart and in their life. And so we get the warning, Deuteronomy 4.9, give heed to yourself. Deuteronomy 4.15, watch yourself. Verse 23, chapter 4, watch yourself. <laughs> Getting redundant, Deuteronomy 6.12, watch yourself. Deuteronomy 8.11, beware. Deuteronomy 11.16, beware. Be on guard. Guard your heart. Don't think you can't be influenced. Look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 12. Watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in your, is in the midst of you. Who is in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That's what God thinks of idolatry. Why are these nations being conquered by Israel? under God's authority because of their idolatry, their sin, their iniquity. So this exhortation and warning against idolatry is repeated numerous times throughout Deuteronomy. And what we learn from this is that this first commandment represents the most important aspect of the law of God and its application to the heart and the life. The sin of sins. The real essence of sin in all of its manifestations, is idolatry. The root of it all is idolatry. And that a right relationship with God requires a repudiation of all idolatry to give the true and the living God as God the rightful place in one's life. Well, that begs the obvious question. What is idolatry? That then has direct bearing on another question. What is worship? What does it mean to worship God? 
Israel is called to be a nation who is in a unique relationship with the true and the living God, a worshiping relationship, whose life is free of all idolatry. They are to be in a right relationship from the heart with God as God, a relationship in which He has His rightful place in their heart and life, and they are to be utterly different in the way they worship and live from all the world around them. Well, what is idolatry? See, this is an exceedingly important question for us to ask in this New Testament age as believers living here in America in the 21st century. There is no truth more important for men to understand in our day than the meaning of this commandment. I am the Lord your God, your creator. You shall have no other gods before me. There is nothing more important for men to understand. Well, to begin with, then, what is idolatry? Well, in a formal sense, idolatry has to do with the failure to be committed to and to worship the true and the living God. It is the worship of false gods as represented by false religions, which deny essential truths of the true and the living God as he has revealed himself in his word. The preaching of the gospel declares to men the truth of the being of God and the need for an exclusive commitment to Him. And so Paul gives this description of the response of the Thessalonians to his preaching and their conversion. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and the living God. They turned from their pagan idolatry to the true and the living God and a wholehearted commitment to serve Him, to worship Him, to live for Him, to follow Him. They're truly converted. They know God, the true God. As Jesus says, this is life eternal, that men may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. This whole issue then of true worship of the true and the living God, that is huge. Men need to understand there is a God who exists, but He's a certain kind of person. He's revealed Himself in His Word. To worship anything but the true and the living God is idolatry. So in the Great Commission, Jesus says the gospel is to be preached, converts are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name of the true and the living God, who is a Trinitarian being. The declaration of three persons and one God who are co-equal and co-eternal. Which requires then the repudiation of all religions and teaching that deny this truth of the Trinity. The personhood and the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The true and the living God is a Trinitarian being. And to worship any other so-called God is idolatry. It's false. One of the prevalent forms of that that took place when God gave His law to Israel was the making of material idols of wood and stone and worshiping them. Or the worship of the moon and the stars, other material manifestations of creation animals, but they make representations. 
the material world. And we see that today in Buddhism and Hinduism. They're full of idols. So this is an abomination to God and the gospel calls for the repudiation, the turning from idols to serve the true and the living God. So if you're preaching to the Hindu and the gospel comes to a Hindu man, that man responds, he's going to repudiate his Hinduism and he's going to worship the true and the living God. As we read the law of God and the particular aspect of the application of that law in Deuteronomy as it is applied to Israel and the pagan practices surrounding it, a man could conclude, well, I don't bow down to a physical idol, therefore I'm not an idolater. But we need to understand that there is a great deal more to idolatry than bowing down to a material object. Just as there is more to adultery than the physical act, and this is where the issue of the heart is so important to understand, the essence of the meaning of the law of God has to do with the right relationship with God from the heart. Where God, as God, has his rightful place in the heart of a man or a woman. Idolatry is simply having something in the heart that displaces God from his rightful place as defined by his law. Something else becomes God in our heart, practically speaking. We may give lip service to who God is, but in the practicality of how we live, we live in idolatry. Something else becomes God in our heart and life. Something else that we love more than Him. That we serve or live for before Him. Something else that we trust in rather than Him to meet our needs. Ephesians 5. You might want to flip over there. This is a startling statement from Paul. We pass over this I mean, we read this and sort of yawn. I mean, think about what he's saying here. Ephesians 5, 5 to 6. This you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see what he said there? A covetous man who is an idolater. One who is in rebellion against the Tenth Commandment. Who has put desires for this world and the things of this world first before God as that which he lives for and is driven by. God is not God in his heart. He loves something more than God. He's an idolater. Self and self's desires are what dominate and control him. And what this shows us is that it is possible to be one who never practices a false religion, who is possibly very committed theologically to the true and the living God. You can define who God is and His attributes. He's a Trinitarian being. You're very committed to the truth, objectively, doctrinally. 
and yet in the heart be an idolater. The law of God as it defines a right relationship with God where there are no idols in the heart or outward life says the relationship with God in the heart where he has his rightful place will be characterized by these descriptions. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart so that the revelation of his will and commitment to its rule, to, to that revelation, rules the heart. One is submitted to the Lord. You love the Lord with all your heart. You're submitted to him from your heart to do the will of God. Deuteronomy 10, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments, which I'm commanding you today for your good. The heart relationship with the Lord then is to be marked by supreme love for him, submission to him as Lord, supreme commitment to obey him. And therefore, anything that displaces the Lord in the heart from what the law of God calls for, of self and sin and the world, constitutes one, an idolater. If the Lord is not my first love, my supreme love, my Lord, so that I am submitted to Him and I live for Him and I serve Him, and if he is not my life, the one I look to as the water of life to my soul, I'm an idolater. Even though I may be perfectly orthodox in my doctrinal understanding of who God is, the Trinity and the deity of Jesus, I may participate regularly in the worship of God and I don't bow down to pagan idols. Yet in my heart, I may be an idolater because self and this world is what is the controlling center of my heart and my life. God does not have his rightful place in my heart and my religious activity and worship then, Jesus says, and the word of God says, is vain. That was the problem with the Jews of Jesus' day. He said all their worship was in vain, even though they honored God with their lips, with their words. They're not formally idolaters. They have learned their lesson. They worship the true and the living God. They have these services. They sing. They pray. They worship God. But Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says, this is vain. Why is it vain? He says, because your heart is far from God. The heart. Their hearts are far from God because they had lawless hearts, Jesus said. You outwardly appear righteous to men. But he said, God knows your heart. And in your heart, you're an idolater. You're lawless. You don't love God with all your heart. You're in all this religious thing for your own glory. And that's what they did. God did not have his rightful place in their hearts. They were idolaters. 
Any heart that is not conformed to the law of God is an idolatrous heart by default. In Luke 16, it says the Pharisees were lovers of money. <laughs> not God, money. They love money more than God. That's idolatry. We know from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that they, what ruled their hearts was self and the desire to promote and glorify and exalt self. All that they did in their religious exercises was to promote themselves in the eyes of men. He says, you get your reward here. You have no reward coming to you from God because what motivates you is self and its glory. You're an idolater. You're stealing glory from God to give it to yourself. Self that has never been dethroned and submitted to the Lord to live supremely for His will is God in that life and heart. It's an idol. The greatest idol in our life. We all have them. The greatest idol is us. Self-rule. Self-will. I'm at the center of my life. I control it. I'm autonomous from God, independent of Him. I am God in my life. Not really, but in practical living, I act as if I am. It's idolatry. And we live in a world that is in rebellion against God and bound in the terrible darkness of idolatry. And the great temptation we have to face as the followers of Christ is not so much pagan religion and false gods, but the world and its value system. So John exhorts believers, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. Love of the world, this is an issue of the heart, the, desires to be, the desire to be identified with and accepted by the world. The desires of the heart that correspond to how the world lives to fulfill self's lusts rather than putting the will of God first. Lust of the flesh, pleasure. Lust of the eyes, coveting, materialism. Boastful pride of life, self-promotion, selfish ambition. All of that's idolatry. Loving, desiring, living for these things. And James tells us and warns us that those who live in accordance with the world in this way make themselves an enemy of God. The world in the way it operates and its value system and the way it lives is an enmity with God. It is full of idolatry. Not rightly related to Him, not living for His glory alone. So friendship then with the world is hostility toward God, James says. It's idolatry and spiritual adultery. You adulteresses he says to them, you have corrupted, if you're going the way of the world, your relationship with God. 
a fundamental denial of this first commandment. So the Word of God gives us warning about other loves that displace God from being the supreme love of our life. 2 Timothy 3 speaks of those who are lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. John 12 speaks of those Jews who believed in Jesus but who refused to make a public profession of Him because of the cost of rejection. And the reason is, he says, because they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They put men first, which is putting their own safety first, putting themselves first before God. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Luke 16 again talks about the Jews who were lovers of money. Think about the rich young ruler who came to Christ, said, how can I gain eternal life? He said, well, you need to understand a couple of things here. Keep the commandments. He said, oh, I've done all that. Oh, okay. Let's say you're a rich guy. Give everything that you own to the poor. Come follow me. Hung his head sad because he owned many possessions, had great wealth. Jesus basically put his finger on the idol of his heart. So you think you love God, you do not. God is not God in your life, money is. It doesn't control you. Money, if money is needed, we need money to live. If God is God, Money does not control us. And we have open hands on all things that are material. I don't need to worry about all that. I have one who cares for me, who's a shepherd, who loves me, who will meet my needs, and who's generous. He's amazingly generous. That's where we got to guard our hearts. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Those who love father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters more than me, is not worthy of me and cannot know me. To enter a saving relationship, Jesus says with him, one must turn from idolatry, from other loves, and give him as God the place of supreme love in the heart and to turn from self-rule and self-will and to submit self to him as Lord. He is applying the law of God to the heart of man, convicting of sin, calling them to repentance, where he as God will take his rightful place in the heart of that individual. That's salvation. So one must turn from idolatry and love the Lord Jesus with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. If any man comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Your whole heart, total devotion, if he's not God, that's idolatry. But he is God, calling for a right relationship with him as God, according to the first commandment of the law. That means then we no longer have idols in the heart. We don't have lawless hearts. They've been purified. He changes our heart. He delivers us from the idolatry 
of this world, but that means we have to repudiate it. We have to turn from it. We have to come to Christ to be delivered from it. The tragic deception, though, of our day is a gospel message that dismisses the notion that one has to turn from idolatry of the heart and assures men that all they need do is believe in Jesus and His work on the cross and they will be saved so that they have a profession of faith in Christ, perhaps religious activity, a commitment to spiritual disciplines, but God is not God in their heart and in their life. They are still idolaters. Like the religious Jews of old to whom Jesus preached the gospel and called them to a right relationship with God in conformity with His law. He called them to repent of idolatry of heart, of self and sin in the world. Become a new creation by His power. The first commandment has to do with the being of God, our creator, and our purpose for creation to be in a right heart relationship with God. And that is then fulfilled in the experience of salvation in Jesus Christ where a man turns from idolatry, from the idols of self and sin and the world. And if need be, the false religious systems that deny the truth of the true and the living God, the cults, if you're a Mormon, you're going to have to repudiate Mormonism. Jehovah's Witnesses, you repudiate that because it's idolatry. It's false religion. You deny an essential aspect of the truth of who the true and the living God is. But then the heart, those false systems, yes, you have to turn from that. You can turn from that and not do it in the heart, you're still an idolater. we got to deal with the heart. We turn to the true and the living God. We turn to the Lord in a wholehearted commitment to Him of love and submission and trust to become His follower, to live for His will, to serve Him alone. And we enter into a heart relationship with our God where God is now God in our life. Practically. He rules it. He's center in it. That's, Paul said it. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me, the living God, in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Totally different life. Radically transformed because the living God has intervened in his life and now owns him. And Paul is rightly related to him as that relationship is defined by the law of God. Jesus died on a cross for the ultimate objective of bringing sinners into this very relationship with God. The fulfillment of the law in their life. So we need to ask ourselves a question, what about our own heart? What about our relationship with God? Have we turned from sin and self in the world, the idolatry of this world? Have we been delivered from that idolatry? Does the Lord truly have His rightful place in our hearts? If He is truly our first love, our Lord and our life, is He? 
Or is our heart still bound to self in the world? I mean, you think about it practically. When you get up, you go to church Sunday, here we are. This is wonderful. What happens tomorrow? And then Tuesday. And Wednesday. And Thursday. Yeah, God's a part of my life. Is he your life? <laughs> what is the passion of your heart? What do you live for? Who do you live for? Who do I live for? What do I live for? What is the passion of the heart? Do I love him with my whole being? That's done by God and his sovereign grace. It is the power of God recreating the heart, delivering from idols, those things that displace the Lord from having first place in the heart. You know, I'm to love my wife if I'm married. A wife is to love her husband, but your wife or husband is not God but can be, in the heart, in a false way, a child. I mean, these are good things, you know. Money is not a bad thing. Money is in, not inherently evil. It's neutral. It's what we do with it. Can God trust me with it? Where's my heart? So what is my life? What am I taking up with during the week? What drives me? What, what, am, what drives me? What do I, ask yourself the question, what and who do I truly love first and foremost in this world? Who do I live for? What really motivates me? What am I living for? What is my ambition in life? Is my heart wholly the Lord's? Or is it one of idolatry? And in the words of Paul, to all of us, make your calling and election sure. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for you. Thank you for giving a revelation of truth to help us understand. Lord, the world we live in, the terrible deception of it, its blindness. But Lord, too, the, the terrible deception that can be even in the church, there can be an outward form of godliness and our commitment to the word of God but Lord the whole issue of the heart who do we really serve who do we live for what do we live for who do we love are we really submitted to you Lord I pray for us that we would be whole true pure transparent real that you possess the totality of our being. That we would walk in the power of your spirit to manifest to the world that there's a true and a living God who exists. Out of a commitment, Lord, to your word, to your law. You are the Lord, our God, our creator. Every breath we take, Lord, is a gift. Right now, every moment we live. Every moment. 
It's given by you. You brought us into being. And in your ordained time, you're going to take us out of here. You're the sovereign. You're the Lord, and you're perfectly good, and you're holy. Boy, this perspective on life, this commandment, I am the Lord your God. I am your creator. I created you for a relationship. I've defined it for you. Deal with idols. I am to be God to you. Father, make these truths real to us. Embed them deeply in our heart. And oh Lord, would you not use us to impact the lives of others with the soberness of this truth and what it means. For idolaters, Lord, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in our own heart and life, Lord, may our lives be holy yours, pure, led of the Spirit, and Lord, would you not use us to be salt and light in this world for your glory. Thank you for your law. Thank you, Lord, it gives us all the answers. For behind it stands a God of love and a desire to bless. And it's out of this relationship with you that we know true life. So we come to you, Lord, and we just come to set everything aside of this world, not to be conformed to it, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, as we present ourselves to you, a living and holy sacrifice, to be your people who love you supremely and who walk in faithfulness to you out of renewed minds by the power of your spirit. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.